embrace it. Now, uh, in Virginia, uh, I was born in Virginia. My family, my father's family, were pretty poor. They were what you might call sharecroppers. My grandmother and grandfather raised nine kids in a shack at the place I knew where they uh, lived when, when I was a little fellow about that tall was just a shack. But that was their second home. They had to give up their first home because of the Depression and move to the shack where they lived. Out, my grandparents lived out their last days. She had, they had nine children, gave them a start in life, and they became each one in their own way successful. And uh, they were positive people in so many ways. I look back now and I didn't appreciate it then so much as I do now how positive and sunny some of those members in that family were in disposition. And I'm grateful for that. But there's one thing about that family that bothered me. I didn't, couldn't find out anything about them. I could never get... It seemed like they wanted to just stay on the surface at times and be light. And as I grew older, I began to ask questions. And I found out we had a secret in our family. Now, I don't know if this secret affected them or not, or they just wanted to get on with life and more positive life and, 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 and escape where they had come from. But I found out that we had a, my great-grandfather was a deserter in the military. Now, that's not a very happy thing, is it? To know that you're the great-grandson of a deserter? Now, I have to tell you, it was a Confederate army. He was a deserter from, does that make it better? No, I might be in trouble there too. And up in Chatham, Virginia, there's a hole in the ground, uh, a dugout cave called the Emerson Cave. And I asked questions about that, and I found out after I'd done a little research in history, yeah, that, that place is existing. If you want to go there, I'll show you. Well, who wants to go back to a hole in the ground named after your great-grandfather? But as I looked at this man's life and studied the history surrounding that service he did, I understood him. I understood him. In a moment of idealism, he went off to war. It was before Bull Run, by the way, 1860. He was one of the first to serve in a volunteer service. He went off to war. He ended up in West Virginia, if I'm correct, in my, my historical study, up around Winchester, a year when the Confederacy was in disarray. They had fought a few battles over in West Virginia. They were all fiascos. They didn't have good leadership. Jackson was fighting with the head people in, in the Confederate Army, trying to get troops. He almost quit there and resigned. He took an ill-fated march over into Hancock, Maryland, and Confederate soldiers, so poorly equipped, were walking barefoot on ice, in an ice storm on January the 5th and gone 10 days and came back with very little result. And Jackson was upset and... My great-great-grandfather was given leave to go home. And he went home, and he didn't go back. Now, I see that in context. I see that as a choice of priorities. I see that as a, a, a matter, I can, I can see it as a matter. I'm sorry that I'm not ashamed of my grandfather hiding now in a hole in the ground when he had a family that was messed up, when he was serving a, 
cause that was already scrambled, a disaster. But I'm not praising God for that. I'm just saying I can understand that. I have to embrace that. That's my roots. That's who I am. That's part of what my history is. And if you go back far enough, you know, some of you, like me, we don't have to go too far, really, to find flaws in our families and in our history. But the beauty of it is, God moves in and transforms us. And He can transform us when we embrace our flawedness. And that's one of the things I see in this story. I see that all, in all the stories in the Bible. But in particular, here were these guys who should have known better, should have been bolder, should have been stronger, should have been there to cross with Jesus, sending the women to watch this cruel enactment. These guys are off somewhere hiding individually in uh, whatever corners they were in. And they come back together the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ after hearing the women and others tell how they had seen Jesus, coming back together in this enclosed room behind closed doors that were locked in fear of the Jews, and they're just whispering and talking among themselves. And the Bible says, and Jesus came and stood among them. You know, it would be awesome. It would be overwhelming to watch a crucifixion. Those people were very familiar with that. Whether those disciples were there at the crucifixion of Jesus or not, they well knew what crucifixion was. They saw carcasses hanging on the post at every crossroads the Romans exerted their powers. When a mom or dad walked down the road, they had to explain why there was a socket in the ground, what that hole was there for to their children. And one could look in the sky and see the carrion, the birds flying around the carrion, hanging on these posts because they were deliberately left there to rot and decay. So that's terrorism at its worst. And the cross was the most horrible death one could die. It was designed to punish and to humiliate and to terrorize the population so that people would stay in line with the Roman army. It was designed to keep you alive as long as possible so that people can watch you and your suffering as Jesus suffered before men and women who were watching on. Well, these people were terrorized. If anybody deserves to be given a little credit, they ought to be given some credit because except by the grace of God, in the time they lived, there go I. And if I had been there, I might not have even been in that upper room. I might have been in a hole in the ground back in the hills of Israel. We don't know where we'd be. But this we do know. In our moments of great need, Christ Jesus is there for us. The Bible says, and he came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now I want to emphasize that word peace again. I, I seem to end up talking about it every service I preach in, but it's 
It's worthy of repeating and repeating and repeating until it's crashed. Peace is not the absence of pain. It's not the absence of difficulty. It's not contentment that comes from happy being, having everything you want. Peace is what Paul said, I have learned in all things therewith to be content. Whether in prison or out of prison, Paul felt he was grounded, he was secure in the will of God. And he used his times in prison to write his letters, which we have today, and admonish and encourage us. He used those times that were in which he couldn't get to go where he wanted to go as a time to witness to those around him. He used those times in prison to witness to his soldiers and to people who came to the house to meet with him. He found fulfillment and contentment and the will of God where he was. He was there with Jesus. So we see them saying, Jesus coming into the midst and saying, Peace be to you. And you know Jesus said before, the peace he gives is not as the world gives. The life he gives is not as the world gives. It means this. May you find everything that satisfies your need for identity, for purpose, for fulfillment, for joy. May you know the fullness of God's presence in your life. And you can have that fullness in your life. And I can have it. In the darkest moments, we are sustained by a power beyond our understanding, by a peace beyond our understanding. We find that instead of hanging on, as we think we sometimes do, we have been held on to. That's the peace we're talking about. Not the peace that takes us out of the path of danger or hardship or challenge, but the peace that makes us solidly secure knowing that no matter what happens, a very important person has us in vision, and his name is God, our Father in heaven. So here Jesus comes and he says, Peace be to you. Now, <clears throat> I want you to note in here the text, he says it twice. First he says it when he first comes, then he shows them his hands and his side, and then they were overjoyed. And then he said, Again, peace be with you. And that's a prelude to something he's going to do. He tells them he's going to send them through those doors back into the world to face the very thing they have been dodging and ducking. It also, whenever the scripture repeats a thing, it means it underscores it. This is important. This is very important. So pay attention. If you didn't hear it the first time, I'm saying it the second time. Like Peter had the three, three revelations of the, the sheep being lowered from heaven three times. We think Peter was so noble in getting the word, getting the impression, and God's talking to him, I want you to rise and kill and eat. And, and Peter was looking at this vision and uh, ducking the truth of it. He was getting ready, getting ready to send him among the Gentiles, among the unclean. So he had to give him the vision three times before he got it. By the way, some people think that visions are really an amazing gift uh, of special spirituality. I want to tell you something. When God has to act that way, that's because you're stubborn. You know, you don't, don't pray for a vision. 
If you get one, fine. If you get an impression that's strong, if you have a special moment with God, a revelation of some kind, some insight, you know, rejoice in it and share it as God gives you the direction. But it doesn't mean you're very spiritual. We would all like to be able to do great things in the name of Jesus, but that's not the way you do things in the name of Jesus. You do things in the name of Jesus out of love. And I know that there are people in this world who can pray for the sick and they get healed, fine. That doesn't make them saints, canonize them. No, they just one, one among many saints. You're a saint, I'm a saint. You know, maybe they're, they're just examples of the grace of God and how it can work. I know there are people who have special gifts in, 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 of insight and wisdom, and they just seem to say the thing that penetrates and goes right to the core of the matter and sets us free with new revelation and understanding. But that's just a gift of God. The real gift we have and we share, and all of us share today, is the Holy Spirit. He's the gift. He's the gift to us of God. He's the one that Jesus breathed upon them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit if you have received Him. And it's just a matter of believing and receiving. And if you give credit to God and glory to God and you honor God with, your, with, with a degree of humility that we should, you are filled with His Spirit. It takes the Spirit to be humble. <laughs> it takes the Holy Spirit in, to make a man humble or a woman humble. It takes the Holy Spirit to do that. It's no more, look what I did. Look what God did in me. But it's more, hallelujah, look what God did. And look what God did in me. And no more boasting about gifts. You can say, you know, God gave me this gift and he gave me that gift. Fine. But that doesn't make you grander. What makes you grander is that you have received the life of the Holy Spirit that Jesus breathed upon you. Let me say one more thing. This reminds me, too, of two texts in the Bible. Breathed on them. First, Adam when he created Adam out of the dust of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. So this has an Im When Jesus breathed on his disciples, I think he was quite close to them, frankly. I'm not even sure if he didn't open their mouths and breathe into them, because that word in, it could mean that. But we won't get there if that's touchy for you. All you have to have is the breath of God on you. And the word for breath of God, as he's used in the Old Testament, is a beautiful word. It doesn't sound beautiful to our ears in the sense that it's ontomontopoeia or something. Anyway, the word for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach. Then just listen to that word, ruach. Let me do it this way, and I hope you don't catch bad breath. Ruach. You don't inhale on that one. When God speaks, he doesn't inhale. He doesn't need to inhale. He's already life. He's breathing life out. He's not sucking life in. God doesn't get inspired by you. You get inspired by God. God doesn't need us, as Joe said, our gifts. He, he challenges us to learn to enter into the flow of his Holy Spirit by giving. Our giving is to release faith and release life and release opportunity and, and release love outwardly so we can participate in the, in the Spirit of God who is Ruach, breathing out. 
Don't you like that? I like it. First time I heard it, I loved it, and I think I repeated it everywhere I've gone at one time or another. God breathes on us the breath of life, and he did here. Now, let me come to the end of this whole thing because I'm running out of time again. When he came to these people behind the closed doors, he spoke peace twice. He breathed on them, and then he sent them. Now, the people that he sent were the most ill-equipped by our standards of education and preparation. They followed Jesus. I mean, that's pretty good. But, you know, they didn't even understand at the time he sent them fully what it, the message that he had given them already. In this moment of time, when Jesus breathed on his disciples, I believe enlightenment began to come. Then Peter, who could not, who fought Jesus at every point about going to the cross, was out on Pentecost Day, 40 days later, preaching the gospel with such insightfulness and such brevity and such heart and such courage and such faith that that word penetrated a crowd, a mass of people, and they came to the Lord in great numbers. We'll touch on that sometime in the future here, I'm sure. He had at last received understanding. Now, I'll tell you something. I think about those 40 days that Jesus was among his disciples uh, before Pentecost was 10 days later. He was with them 40 days making appearances. I think Jesus was with them more than recorded. My impression is, and I'll hit this later, is that Jesus was or maybe almost daily with them. I can't make a case for it, and I don't try, but my impression is, and I, can, I have justification on that, that he was appearing all the time to them. We know he appeared to 500 people at one time. You see, this was no ghost, this Jesus here. He didn't walk through the walls like some ghost fades through the walls in the movie. If he did come through the wall, it didn't say that here, it says he appeared among them. If he did come through a wall, it was more like we were the vapor of fog that he, the solid one, walked. This world is not as real as the next one. This world is, you know, we need to see this as a vapor. In fact, this literature is filled with references to this vaporous life, this, this uh, moment on the stage where the actors strut and fret the hour. Uh, it's filled with images of, of realization that our all flesh is grass and we are passing through. So the real world is coming. It's going to be fulfilled. Adam was real. We are the fallen ones of his race we've lost something. We've lost a solidarity. We've lost a, a substance. We've lost a, a something we had in the garden that Adam had in the garden where he walked like Jesus, I believe. He walked like Jesus in the garden. He had powers like Jesus demonstrated in the flesh. He had authority. He had dominion in that garden. 
And that's sort of a beautiful imagery, of course. But he had control over the world. But there was no pride there until he ate the forbidden fruit and tried to be like God and tried to know good and evil like God. So, Jesus came among them and he sent these disciples who got the vision after the Holy Spirit was breathed upon them. And they began to say, aha, I see things now. As you did, perhaps, as I certainly did, I began to understand. Things began to become clearer. And they continued to become clearer, by the way. They became exciting. It became like, this is, this is real. I think that's a test of a life. You say you follow Jesus. Does Jesus become more real to you every day? I think he is to me. I know in devastating moments of my life, he's been there holding me. And I would have otherwise been a wreck. I know I once was something that I'm not now. And I know I'm some, some, some things now that I don't want to be. I hope I'm not tomorrow. But it's ever-changing, ever-improving, this relationship. So he said, I'm sending you out. And that's where the title comes from, church. Breaking the bars. What is a bar? It's a barrier on that door. It's more like lifting sometimes. They lifted the bar from the door and went out into the world. But I want to say something else. Later when they're meeting, they're behind the closed door again with bars. Does that mean they were afraid? Not now. They were just smart. <laughs> you know, God gives us, you know, they were, they were behind those closed doors for different reasons. Now they were preserving the church for its mission. Not one of them feared death. Oh, they probably had moments of fear, but every one of those disciples, except for John, died a horrible death, refusing to refute their Savior. So that's them. This is us. What about us ordinary people? Needing ordinary faith to do ordinary things in ordinary times. The lesson's simple. What is your demon? What is the thing you fear? What is it out there, out there, whatever, out there, there is? You know, gosh, I hate that. <laughs> I wonder where there is. Is there here? Is here there? You know, y'all know that ad on TV. Good. <laughs> What is your out there that you have to face? Mine. Find your demon and walk right up to it. Find your fear and confront it. Defy it and call on the name of the Lord to save you. That's a lesson here. Face your foe, for now you have been empowered by the Holy One who breathed on you the breath of life. And height nor depth, nothing 
Nothing can separate you from him. Death, sin, the devil, nothing. That's the confidence we have. And when we don't feel it, he's there anyway. But I feel him. I feel him here today. I feel him in my well-trained perception. And I hope you will engage yourself with your foe. In the name of Jesus, defy your fear. Let him walk you slowly and graciously down the road till you can stand up and boldly say, I live because Christ lives in me. Amen. I think we should go to our last hymn. I've gone over time. I thank you for that opportunity this morning. You had no other choice, I know.